Good evening, everyone. Our first reading is from the book of Psalms, chapter 85, verses 1 and 2, and also 8 through 13. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our second portion is from the epistle of 2 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading today is found in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 1. 
the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Blessed Lord who caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Today, we lit the candle of peace, which is a very interesting time to do so, given that we're in the middle of Hanukkah, which is a holiday of war. And we ourselves are in a war. But up there for the rest of the night, assuming that the wax lasts long enough, the candle of peace will burn. Keep that in mind. There are four Gospels, but one story. Matthew constantly looks at the Psalms, it looks at Isaiah and the prophets, and it boldly proclaims, These prophecies are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Because God has come down and he meets with his people and he talks to them and he tells them things that are yet to come. But they will come and they have come. The heavens and the earth meet And just as God comes down, people are supposed to recognize the kingship of God and meet him, recognize that he is our king. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Luke is the perfect Jewish narrative. It speaks of faithful women 
which is, of course, the start of any good Jewish narrative. Because it is the women who are the faithful ones. And the old people who are faithful. Don't worry, you have to be at least 90 to be old in the context of faithful old people. <laughs> However, if you are faithful and old and God blesses you, that grace shines to all of those around you, even in your old age. Or if you're young, even in your young age. The details and historicity that Luke gives makes it one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite gospels, because I'm a big history fan. But it continues this Jewish narrative of miraculous births, evil kings, and a God who is going to meet with his people, show grace to his people, show mercy to his people, and save them. The book of John, of course, is slightly different, unlike Matthew, Mark, or Luke. It delves deeply into Jewish thought and even deeper into Jewish theology. The author of John will take a statement from Isaiah 48. There is this being, the first and the last, and the first and the last creates the world. Ergo, he must be God. Obviously. The creator is God. And then, God sends the first and the last out with a spirit. Well, what do you do with that? And the Jewish people wrestled with it and just like Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah 48, this idea of maybe there are two powers in heaven, God and the Messiah. And John is going to come forth with this Jewish argument and say, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know what? He's God. And it'll go into other arguments from Psalm 27, Isaiah 9. You have a light that is brought down, that shines, that enters into the world. Jesus is that light. If you read things like Psalm 27, Isaiah 9, the light brings salvation. So Yeshua is the light, and the light brings salvation. What a great play on his name. But Mark, it skips all of that. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. It starts in the wilderness, and this is not an accident. For the next year, we'll be looking at Mark. So I welcome you to the war.
Each day, we are inundated with rumors of war. And in fact, now we don't have to worry about the rumors of war because you hear the actual war. We start to learn what it means to be at war. We wake up. We look in the newspaper. We look at the article and we say, one of the ones I knew? Is it that one? Which of them died? If it's one that I know, hallelujah, they're saved. Hopefully. But the devastation to our community, to their parents, to their wives, to their children is real. And if it's not one I know, it's a good chance they don't know God. Which is just as devastating. The war, the closer you get, the more it affects your life. You cannot help but be changed if you realize there is a war happening around you. In the ancient world, there are two places where chaos and evil and death ruled and reigned. First you have the sea, the oceans. There's a saying, there's no atheist when you're in a storm at sea. You can look at the sailors in the book of Jonah who called out to any god, any god that's out there, save us. As Christians, I'm sure we're mostly familiar at least to some degree with Hades. But it was Poseidon that we feared. Especially if you lived anywhere near the coast. Poseidon was the one that when you went to war, you would sacrifice your daughter so that your ships would not be strewn across the landscape. We'll look at the other place today where chaos, evil, and death reigned, the wilderness. The wilderness is and always has been a dangerous place. Now, I love hiking there. But it's dangerous. You never know when death waits for you there. We might have cool equipment. I might be able to bring out my phone and try and call somebody and then realize that I have no cell service. Um, so I can't. So I was hiking once, and the guy I was hiking with, he climbed a little chimney, um, and he fell about mm, 25, 30 feet, 10 yards, uh, 10 meters, excuse me. And um, we're in the middle of nowhere. Thankfully, he was able to literally push off one side, push off the other side, push off the first side as he's falling and land in a heap, but he was fine. But you never know. Death 
wait for you in the wilderness. But there's something that's even more dangerous, even more scary to be found in the wilderness. See, this is where the demons are. In the book of Tobit, you have the story of Ashmodeus. And Ashmodeus is a demon that is sent to the desert, exiled there. In the book of First Enoch, you have the story of Azazel, right? If you remember um, from Leviticus 16, you have two goats. One you sacrifice, the other one you do not kill, but you send to Azazel, to this wilderness. And in the book of uh, First Enoch, this place, this, it becomes named after the demon that inhabits it. Demons are thought to inhabit the wilderness. There's a story the other day that we told um, where you have monks. I think it was Egypt, yes. And they went out into the desert and they would pray for seven, ten days. And they considered it to be the front lines of war for Christianity. And there was an author who wanted to go out and kind of see what it meant to be a monk, to be out here in the wilderness. And he was interested in what's going on and a good Christian guy. And the monk said, careful, this will be the hardest point of your entire life. And the monk went out and he prayed in the wilderness for a week. And the author, who was a good Christian guy, I believe, he lasted two, three days. Because he was hard. Confronted by evil. Confronting evil. In the book of Mark, we have this short verse, two verses, 12 and 13. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels attended him. These short two or three sentences, depending on how many commas you put in, uh, these short, we'll say three sentences, are matched in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, except there it takes three long paragraphs to explain everything that happened. But for Mark, it's obvious. Jesus was sent into the wilderness by the Spirit. And if he's sent to the wilderness, obviously he's going to be confronted by the powers and principalities of this world, whether visible or invisible. In this particular case, Matthew and Luke will point out that it was the prince of this world, Satan. And Jesus will face a test. And obviously, if he passed the test, then God 
were sent as ministering angels to take care of Jesus and protect him. And so for Mark, really all you have to say is Jesus was sent out into the wilderness. The rest of it is obvious. Of course he's going to have to fight a war there. And it wasn't war. For Mark, by starting his gospel in the wilderness, he's boldly declaring that there is an active war occurring. There's a war between God and chaos, a war between God and evil, a war between God and death. A God between the a war between God and the powers and principalities of this world. Again, whether we can see them or not. And in fact, there is a war, or at least a conflict, or some kind of a struggle, even between God and the disciples who claim to follow him. And dare I say it. Jesus had to also fight and struggle in this war. Why did Mark start in the wilderness? It wasn't that in the wilderness, a voice like John the Baptist would cry out, prepare the way of the Lord. Instead, by the third and second century BC, there is this knowledge and belief based off of simple Hebraic poetry, which you'll find everywhere in the Bible, that it wasn't a voice in the wilderness crying out. Instead, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, is a command. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Matched by the Hebraic poetry of make straight in the desert a highway for our God. God gave a command. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Geography and theology are very closely linked in the Bible, or at least given that that was my major, I really hope it was. Events happen in a specific place, in a specific time for a specific region. Midbar is the word for wilderness. Mem, Dalit, Midbar, Beit uh, Reish. And it means wilderness, but there's another word. Exact same letters. Memdalit Beit Reish, Medaber. And vowels weren't written in the Bible for centuries. So the only way to tell between wilderness and someone speaking was the context. 
in the wilderness, you go out and you hear the voice of God. And you see that throughout scripture. Moses goes out into the wilderness. What does he find there? The voice of God. Israel is sent out into the wilderness. And what do they hear? The voice of God. And they're so scared that they don't want to approach it. Because it is the voice of God. Elijah sent into the wilderness. What did he find there? The voice of God. Jesus is sent into the wilderness. Paul goes into the wilderness. You can even make arguments that David ran into the wilderness. All of these different people who were sent into the wilderness. And perhaps they had to leave the idolatry of the cities or the farms. There was a lot of idolatry in farms in those days, just as much as in the city. It wasn't an idyllic life, <laughs> the perfect people. Perhaps they had to go into the wilderness to hear the voice of God. Or maybe, along with those things, they had to go into the wilderness to fight the war where it's the hardest. What was John's message? First, there's the command. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. How do we do that? Well, in the book of Mark, you repent. It's actually a pretty simple concept. You repent. Just like you see so many times in scripture, Jeremiah says over and over, return, return, return. As the people walk away from God to their own way, to their own destruction, he says, no, walk towards God. And he largely failed. People didn't turn. In fact, so many of the prophets failed. What's interesting is that John the Baptist actually succeeded. Unbelievably, people streamed to the wilderness. They went to this location to hear the voice of God. From Judea, from Samaria, from Jerusalem, they all ran to the wilderness to hear the voice in the wilderness who is making straight the path for God. And they do repent and they turn to God so much so that when John goes and says, look, over there, that's the Lamb of God, his disciples go, what, where? Oh, hey, we're going that way. Perfect. And you have Jesus' first disciples before he even starts his ministry. Before he teaches, before he does miracles, these disciples are like, hey, we're following you. Okay. Good. 
It's going to be a long journey. Hope you're ready for it. Psalm 85. There's another way. It says in Psalm 85, verse 10, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Earth and heaven. God and man. And they meet together. Where God is righteous, people should be faithful. Where God gives peace, people should be righteous. And you know what? Where God is righteous, people should have peace. God loved us, so we should be faithful. But God is also faithful, so we should love our neighbors. They meet together. Heaven and earth. And we follow our God in this war. Jumping to Second Peter. Again, relatively simple. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish. And when I say relatively simple, I mean one of the hardest things you can possibly think to do. Just, you know, be blameless. That's it. No problem. But we're supposed to be following God. We are in a war. And the closer to war you get, the more you pay attention to what is happening. No father would think of their son in the army and go, eh, I don't need to pray for him today. It's fine. But I will admit that the war in Gaza, it doesn't affect me as much as it does some other people. I'm an American. I moved here. This isn't where my citizenship is. I only have a select few friends because I'm an introvert. But it's fine. I like it. But for some people, it consumes their life. And you know what? Maybe it should. But they've also forgotten that I've been in the war for a lot longer than this. God won. 
my war in 1988. Before that, I was on losing side. I would have lost everything. And thank God that he did win this war for me. Can you imagine looking at someone in your family and not praying for them? Can you imagine looking at your neighbors and not praying for them? If someone went to the hospital and you got the phone call, your loved one is on the surgery table, they might die. You would call every single person you knew, or you'd simply rush to the hospital and pray the entire time as you drive. And you wouldn't stop. And you, your spouse, and all those who hear would pick up their phone to God and pray. Well, we are at war. And maybe we've forgotten that. Mark starts at war in the wilderness where there is a fight going on every single day. So let me read one more time Second Peter chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You are to live holy and godly lives. You look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And forgive me, I'm going to interrupt this somber moment to give you uh, a linguistic study to hasten, to speed the day. There are two ways that you can actually interpret this word, to hasten. First, you can look at it from a very Hebraic standpoint. There's this concept, tikkun olam. 
repairing the world. Peter notes earlier that if you have a fight between a husband and a wife or any kind of separation between them, suddenly it's awful lot harder to pray to God. Right? And so, what do you do? You repair, you repair what's happening here. And in some way, there's this concept that we as people, even though we have no idea when God is coming, and we won't until he does, in some way, it appears that we can actually speed it up, have it come sooner by living a blameless life, by repairing the breach. But there's another way to interpret this word. To look forward to, to hope, to really want this thing to happen. We want this thing to happen and I would argue that perhaps it's actually used in both ways but let me read it in the more slightly more Greek way if I can find it it's in a different version as you I'll go to my other version What sort of people ought you to be in what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for waiting for and wishing for wanting to bring the coming of the day of the Lord the day of God what kind of people are you because when this day comes the heavens will be set on fire and they will dissolve. And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Maybe we don't actually want the day of the Lord to come like we think we do. And I think it is both. I think on the one hand, we do want it to come and we should try to bring it as we are able closer, even though again, what that means, we have no idea. But let's say that Jesus came in 2012. Who here would have lost the war? I know there are some. But Jesus is coming in 2012 for sure. Two thousand? What if he had come then? I remember during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, people were like, oh, um, uh, Iraq is Babylon, this, that, the other thing. Uh, they're building like a massive statue, right? Maybe, I don't know. Jesus is surely coming back. What was that, 91? Something, I don't know. 
What if he had come in 87? I would have lost the war. I hear so many people who want Jesus to come back. You know what I haven't heard? I haven't heard a lot of people speak about counting the patience of God as salvation. Maybe that's also good. Not to say that we don't want God to come back. But as long as he's patient, there is hope. There is pain because we're in a war. But you know when this war ends? When Jesus comes back. And that's it. Because he will come back. The sword in his hand. And the heavens and the earth will melt. And everything on this earth will be laid bare. And everyone on it will be judged. God has, is, and will win this war. I promise you that. But will I have repented? Will I be found blameless and without spot? Will I have gone out to where the fighting is strongest and hardest? To battle against the powers and principalities of this world? My answer to you is this. No, I won't. I cannot. At least I cannot by myself. So please, help me. Encourage me. Tell me when I must repent. Confess with me when we must repent. And in the hardest place you can imagine, or the war that is currently happening, wherever that place is where it's hardest, in that location, prepare the way of the Lord.